Hi everyone, welcome back. This is Jacob from Attention to Detail. Today we're coming to you with another episode on listening tips for a specific era of music. Last time we broke down the Baroque era, which as I mentioned, was the first era of four in what we might consider kind of modern Western art music. Generally, historians have clumped uh, modern Western art music into four eras, the Baroque, the classical, the romantic, and the modern or contemporary. And today we'll be talking about the second of those eras, the classical era. Now, this is not to be confused with all of classical music. It's kind of disappointing that we we can't come up with a better name for one, if not both of these, because the classical era in music, much like classical music in general, is not particularly tied to our general sense of the word classical, that of kind of the ancient Greeks or, or Romans, but what classical music, now we're talking about the era, and for the rest of this pod we'll talk about the era of classical music, which happened to go from about 1750 to 1810, give or take. The cl- classical era and classical style music has not so much to do with with ancient Greece or ancient Rome or anything that we think of in the the regular classical sense, but it is very closely tied to the intellectual movement of the Enlightenment, which happened to be going on at a similar time to when these composers were writing. And the Enlightenment was all about reason and rationality, and you see it in Enlightenment artworks, you see it in Enlightenment literature, um, there's a big focus on uh, on reason and rationality. The rationalists and the empiricists were working at this time or just before. And so we were discovering tons of new things about the extent of human uh, the human mind and our ability and our capacity to reason through things and come up with these kind of models of human existence that were as close to perfection as possible. And this is what uh, drove a lot of classical composition in this era. It's like the thought movement. It's geared towards perfection. It's nicely organized. It's reasoned. It's clean. It's efficient. And this sometimes stands in contrast to the Romantic era. Um, Romanticism in in philosophy and in art was much more about passion, emotion, emotion. you know, the philosopher Schopenhauer uh, fought against the idea that humans were rational beings uh, and and thought they were driven by this kind of passionate will um, that infected the music of of Richard Wagner and and Tchaikovsky and all of these romantic composers. But the classicists and the classicists that we're going to focus on today, Mozart, Haydn, and early Beethoven, they were largely driven by, they were in an environment of rational thought, reason, and that's what their music reflected. Now, that's our brief historical overview, and we're going to give you five tips for listening to classical music. One of the greatest knocks on classical style and Mozart, Haydn, early Beethoven, what I hear most from listeners is, it's kind of boring, it all kind of sounds the same. I hear that even from the best musicians, musicians who I greatly respect. And I have to say, for everyone listening here, could not be more wrong. And I hope that over the course of this podcast, we can go a little way into 
showing that because I find this music to be not only not uniform in in any sense of the word, but also incredibly interesting, incredibly engaging. It takes a finely tuned ear, but we've been working on that on this podcast. That's that's the point is to continue building our skills of listening. And it takes critical listening. So not just turning on some Mozart in the background and listening to it because it's pleasant. One of the uh, kind of byproducts of the fact that this music is so immaculately constructed in kind of this vein of the Enlightenment is that it does sound great when you just turn it on in the background and you don't actually listen to the fine details. But especially in the case of Mozart and Beethoven, these were two absolute geniuses, musical geniuses, uh, geniuses of the highest order, and their music really deserves listening on a very critical level because, uh, you know, I don't want to make two massive claims here, but I think for me, they are the top two composers who ever lived, and I have yet to see a composer since whose genius has been matched on the same level. Um, and so I encourage you when we talk about classical music to to activate the attention like we talk about all the time and really give this music a good chance because... For me, it's some of the best, if not the best, ever composed. So with that, let's jump into our uh, five tips for listening. And the first one is that classical music, again, it gets this kind of rap of being, uh, you know, uniform and uninteresting and it's very square and it just unfolds in uh, four-bar phrases and everything is kind of routine but actually classical music more than any other era of music features the quickest change of character from one second to the next in the music. And so if you actually listen closely to classical style music, you'll start to notice that the characters are changing on a second to second basis. It's almost this slightly kind of schizophrenic level of, of, change of emotion where boom, suddenly you're somewhere else and then you're back and then you're somewhere else and you're back. And it happens so fast that a lot of listeners don't even notice it. But this is one of the hallmarks of classical style is incredibly quick changes of character, often to use terminology from this podcast, from one musical idea to the next. And so if you haven't listened to our Hearing Ideas Technique podcasts, we recently reviewed this a few episodes ago, but also you can go way back to the beginning. These would be very valuable to listen to because the key to listening to classical music, I think more than anything else, is recognizing individual musical ideas and recognizing how the character shifts so rapidly between them. So I want to listen to an example of this quick, quick character shifting. This is from very early Beethoven, who was a student of Haydn, Never actually, we're not sure if he ever met Mozart, but um, he certainly idolized Mozart. And as a young composer, Beethoven was very much in the classical mold. He was kind of the last great classicist before he switched to being the first great romanticist. But here's an early one of Beethoven's piano sonatas, and we'll just listen to a little clip of it, and then we'll listen to it again, and I'll kind of talk you through a little bit while the clip is playing. Uh, these quick changes of character. So first, let's just listen to a little clip of this Beethoven, just get a sense of how it sounds, and then I'll guide you through it the second time we listen to it. Mm -hmm. 
Right, so there's the beginning of this piano sonata by Beethoven, and now let's listen to it one more time, and I'll just talk you through some of these ideas, the very, very quick changes of character as we listen to this piano sonata. On first listen, it might have felt like, okay, that's some nice music, but it all sounds the same. But now let's listen a little more closely to the individual musical ideas, and I'll try to break them down a little bit for you as we listen. All right, so already we heard two characters, and this is different. This is kind of a similar nostalgic character. I will go back to the opening idea. this triumphant idea, and now this kind of slow-moving, sustained idea. So they're just in a very quick time, right at the beginning, for example, it goes bum bum Even in that little idea, we have this rising figure, it's kind of declamatory, and then we hear this frill, this kind of embellishment, totally different idea. And then we had that kind of triumphant or defiant idea. And then we go into something totally new that's, that's kind of sustained and upward moving and a very sweeping gesture. So even in these 30 seconds, we've got rapid, rapid changes of character. And this is not the case in a lot of other music. A lot of music you might be familiar with, you know, romantic music often will sit with one emotion for 10 minutes if they... If they so please, in the piece by Tchaikovsky or something like that. But this is all about quick, quick changes of character. And so one thing to do when listening to classical music, which I highly recommend, is listen on the kind of second-to-second basis and try to apply this hearing ideas technique that we have on the podcast for really isolating different and unique characters and noticing how they're put together. One of the keys of the hearing ideas technique is that we're not really trying to tell a story here. So if it helps, you can, you can try to kind of imagine different characters, but, but really that's not the ultimate goal. This is mostly absolute music, and so we're just trying to hear these quick changes of character and notice how many different varieties of musical ideas these composers can kind of incorporate into a very, very quick span of music. So it, it requires listening on a very, very minute second-to-second level. Now in keeping with that... If you do want to have some sort of character reference, the second tip that we have is is very important as well, and that's to think about classical music, I think much more than Baroque music, as often instrumental versions of opera. Now, opera was kind of king at, at the time of classical music, the classical style, that is to say, and Mozart, our kind of number one premier classical style composer, was a prolific opera composer. At that time, he lived in Vienna, and the Vienna State Opera was kind of the pinnacle of of Western European music making. And so these composers, even Beethoven, who only wrote one opera and kind of shunned a lot of vocal genres for most of his life, they thought in very operatic terms. And so a lot of times, in keeping with these quick changes of character we can hear these kind of operatic conversations or operatic moments where a specific type of character or a specific human idea or emotion is quickly evoked that you might hear in an opera. And of course, 
Operas often feature, almost exclusively feature, human characters, and humans are susceptible to mood swings and, and quick changes of, of feeling, and that's captured in the, the opera of, of the classical style. So in keeping with that, we kind of want to listen to instrumental music along with actual operatic music with an operatic character in mind. And this can really help. And I want to show you how to do this. And it doesn't require you to know anything about opera or any real thing about specifically Mozart or Haydn operas or anything like that. You just need to have in your mind when you're listening, okay, this could be two human characters on a stage. What might they be saying to each other? And that often helps people to listen to these quick changes of ideas. So in our Beethoven example, you might have uh, one character going, bom, bom, kind of, hello, how are you? And, oh, I'm a little shy. Just in this little opening figure, you might hear some sort of singing conversation between two characters. But I want to flesh this out in a little more detail. So let's listen to a symphony by Mozart, the opening of a symphony by Mozart, one of his most famous symphonies, his 25th. And then we'll look at how some of the characters that we hear in this opening of this symphony are mimicked in actual characters, moments from Mozart operas, and the kind of affect that we might gain from an actual operatic setting is something that we can apply to our listening of this instrumental music as well. So first, let's listen to a little clip from Mozart's 25th symphony. Here's just the beginning minute or so. And again, here we'll listen on the, you can listen on the second by second basis, or maybe a little broader, kind of the five to 10 second basis, but try to get the sense of the main characters in this opening few bars of this Mozart symphony. So here's the beginning of Mozart 25. Okay, so there is the opening of, of Mozart's 25th Symphony. And for me, I think we really have three large-scale characters there. We have the kind of opening music. It's imposing. It's aggressive. It's forward-driving. Then we have that kind of mournful tune in the, the oboe, that instrument that we heard when the music gets much softer. And then there's this outburst of joyousness and optimism towards the end. And so now we'll look to the world of, of opera and maybe specifically Mozart operas to find some actual characters that may contribute to this. And this is not to say that when you're listening, you have to find these characters, but this is instructive 
potentially for how these composers were thinking about it, and it should give you some confidence to feel entitled to assign characters to what you hear and to listen to the music of the classical style in this kind of operatic sense. So this opening character, the, the, the opening music of this Mozart 25th symphony, for those who are playing along at home, happens to be in G minor. And as we mentioned, it's imposing, it's forward driving, it's very gung-ho. And it turns out that one of Mozart's uh, darkest operas, Don Giovanni, is mostly in G minor as well. And there's this figure of the commentadore, this very imposing figure who shows up dressed in all black to chide Don Giovanni for his bad behavior. And so here's the first appearance of the commentadore, and it sounds quite strikingly similar to that of the opening of this 25th symphony. So here's the first appearance of that figure dressed in all black, superimposing the commentadore. So it's quite similar music. It's turbulent. It's it's moving forward, but it's also got that highly kind of tumultuous, imposing nature. So we might think, we might hear the opening and think, oh, that's the commentadore, or we don't need to even know what the commentadore is, but we might think, oh, wow, that's an imposing operatic figure who's coming to uh, wreak havoc on everything that's going on on the stage. Doesn't matter if we know that to be a, a actual Mozart operatic character, but just that he was thinking in those terms. So then we come to the mournful music, and what might we have there? Well, let's flip to a different opera, that of the Magic Flute. And there's a character, the Queen of the Night, very famous character, who at one point is lamenting the loss of her daughter who was taken from her. And she's singing this very mournful lamentation. And let's hear a little bit of that. Sounds very similar to that oboe melody that we heard in, in the beginning of this 25th symphony. So there's the Queen of the Night, and again, we don't necessarily need to know that character. We might just think to ourselves, wow, you know, this sounds like a mother mourning the loss of her daughter who's been kidnapped from her. Very specific image. You might not have exactly that, but again, very plausible operatic character. And then, not two minutes later, the same aria, the Queen of the Night, that was also in G minor, by the way, and it switches to B-flat major, just like our music does here in the 25th Symphony, and suddenly she gets newfound vigor and optimism because she's telling the lead character of Tamino to go and rescue her daughter. So there's hope, there's optimism, there's joy. And here's what she sings there. Sounds very similar to that explosion of optimistic music that we heard at the end of the clip of the 25th Symphony. So here's another clip from the Queen of the Night. Yeah. 
All right, I hate to stop it because that is one of my favorite arias in all of Mozart's output. It's it's a phenomenal magic flute is just a phenomenal piece, and I highly recommend. If you want a clinic in the classical style, you can go listen to that phenomenal opera. It's not too long, and it has incredible operatic characters, changes of character, everything you might want. So those are our first two tips. Let's move on to our third tip. The first two tips are really about listening to the the changing characters that exist so often in this music. Now, there's another one that I want us to listen for, and that's metric irregularity. And the third tip is to listen for metric irregularity. So what does that mean? Well, as we probably know from listening to, to any music that we might listen to, whether it be pop, classical, anything in between, music is arranged in groups. And most often, it's arranged in groups of, of fours. If you listen to most of your favorite pop songs, you can kind of count off and think of them as grouping into fours. You know, twi- uh, this is not a pop song, but it's actually, among other things, a set of variations by Mozart, but Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star is an excellent example. Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, that's four. How I Wonder What You Are, four. Just like poetry, it, it, music arranges into very nice groups often of four. And one of the criticisms of classical music, classical style music that is, is that it's incredibly square and that everything is just fours. And so it's kind of boring in that way because it just it's very predictable. And again, this could not be more wrong. And in fact, what is important is to listen to the moments when in fact it does exactly the opposite and it is not arranged in group of fours. There's some sort of metric irregularity because these are moments I find of genius And it's really, it shows the ability of these composers to break the mold that we expect, to jar our expectations, to create a moment of artistic inspiration where we least expect it. Because if we've turned off our brains, we're just going to expect, okay, here's another four, here's another four. And so it's really interesting to listen to classical music in this way, actually following along with yourself and kind of being like, okay, that was a group of four, that was a group of four, whoa, whoa, suddenly something happened and my whole sense of pulse and tapping my foot along got jarred. And I want to give you an example of this. I'm going to play a clip again twice. First, I just want you to listen to it, but then we'll listen along with it, and I'll actually count off how this music seems to be grouped. And I I think it'll be important. Try to do it yourself the first listen through, but you might not, you know, get it necessarily correct or anything like that. But try to just listen to moments that feel like they kind of jar your expectation a little bit of what you might expect the music to do. So here's the clip. This might seem challenging, but just give it a listen and kind of try to group it in your mind. Okay, that sounded like a group of four. Okay, that sounded like a group of four. Ooh, wait, there was something weird there. And then I'll actually count it off for you to show how I've heard this passage. So Here's a clip from a Mozart piano concerto number 22, his third movement, beautiful second theme. And first you'll hear a a nice, you'll hear the theme presented in a nice group of four plus four. Nice eight bar melody. It's very square, but then we get some, some variation. So here's the second theme of Mozart's third movement, piano concerto number 22.
right, so this is a highly irregular metric passage, but hopefully we could hear the first melody is grouped nicely in groups of, of four. So now let's do it again, and I'll actually count you through it as I hear this. And very odd groupings here, moments where you think, whoa, okay, something, something just happened, and that jarred my expectations. So here's that clip again, and I'll count you through it this time. All right, so here we go. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Nice and easy. One, two, three, four. Now listen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, one, two, three, four. One, two, three. Whoa, one, two, three, whoa, one, two, three, four, that was good, one, two, three, whoa, one, two, three, four, oh, keeps going, five, six, one. All right, so a lot to keep track of there, but what we heard there is we, it's, it's genius by Mozart, as far as I'm concerned. He introduces this lovely theme. And then we hear it again. A beautifully crafted antecedent and consequent four plus four. Beautiful. But then we hear that theme again and we think, okay, he's just going to repeat it. But actually, he cuts off a bar, so it's only seven. We hear this group of seven, which feels so weird. And then, ooh, suddenly we're going along, and we, we've skipped another bar, and we're having these groups of three. And then we, we're, we expect to hear a group of four, but actually he extends it, and we hear a group of six instead of four. Now, it's not necessarily important that you be able to do this kind of grouping on the fly, like an experienced listener like myself who's heard thousands of pieces of classical music is able to do. That's not the point here. The point is that we want to recognize these moments of departure from expectation because they are the real genius mo moments from a composer like Mozart or Beethoven. This passage is a, uh, is a passage that very few composers could have written, at least from, from the classical era, because we know for a fact there are tons of other composers, lesser composers, who wrote passages like this, and they did exactly what you might expect. And so the real genius and, and the treat of, of listening to a great genius like Mozart is being able to listen to them jar our expectations like this, tweak what we might expect in just the slightest ways. In, in, you know, it's such a refined tweaking of what we might expect, but it makes all the difference in the world. It's like a great piece of artwork. You think about, I believe it's the painter Velasquez, if I'm not mistaken, who, who paints these incredible paintings of people great level of detail, but then there's these, he's got this little signature, these flecks of white paint that, you know, it's not realistic entirely. It's not exactly what you might depict in a painting, but those little departures from expectation make all the difference in the world and differentiate Velasquez from a painter like, at least for me, a painter like Poussin or who, however you pronounce that name, a classical painter who, as far as I can tell, just painted these landscapes in as boring a way as he possibly could. They don't depart from our expectation, but the great painters, you know, 
even the great classical painters, people who are painting things through the ideas of rationality and reason and in the case of visual art, kind of realism. But there's these slight departures that, that jar expectation and make all the difference in the world. And so that's something really important to listen for as far as I'm concerned in, in classical style music is these moments of metric irregularity that jar our sense of squareness actually keep this music incredibly off kilter, incredibly light, taking all of these unexpected turns. So that's an important thing to listen for as well. Now, as we zoom out even further, one really key thing, and here's our fourth tip, is to listen for the idea of what we've talked about several times on this podcast already, but the idea of sonata form. Now, again, if you've listened to this podcast before, you might know kind of what I'm referring to there, but for the purposes of these tips to make it easier to listen to classical style music, we're not going to review exactly what that is. The most important thing is that a lot of classical style music, and indeed this set the the kind of archetype for Romanticism and Modernism, but it was it came to fruition in the classical style, was pieces composed in sonata form. Sonata form actually became kind of the enlightenment ideal of musical form. It got refined to this level of perfection where composers wrote in it for effectively every first and many third or fourth movements of their pieces. And the key to sonata form, the only thing that we really need to know uh, when we're listening to classical style for the listeners of this podcast, is that there are two contrasting themes. And the main layout of sonata form is an opening theme. It's often the more aggressive, domineering uh, in in that time when gender norms still were were propagated to to a, a much greater extent than hopefully they are now, it was considered the more masculine of the two themes. Then there was this transition where a lot of energy was gained or potentially optimism was gained, and then you had the more inward, the more intimate, often the more again in keeping with the gender norms of the time, more feminine of the two themes. That comes later, and you have these two contrasting themes or characters that dominate the majority of the movement. And so let's listen to the opening of a piano sonata by Mozart. And what I want us to listen for, and here our, our technique of mapping, our large-scale technique, can really come into play. And so that's worth maybe reviewing as well. But I want us to listen now on a longer scale, maybe more of a 30-second to a minute type scale, and listen to the main kind of characters or themes that are being introduced and see if you can notice when a totally contrasting theme enters and try to kind of capture some of those differences in characteristics because so much of a of classical form is based on this idea of contrast it's this kind of agon the greek ideal of two people battling to achieve this kind of synthesis of ideas and so these two themes fight with each other and eventually come to some sort of conclusion by the end of the movement. So here's the opening of a Mozart piano sonata in A minor. And I want us to listen. Listen for actually three things. The opening theme right from the beginning, its character, it's probably going to be the more bombastic, aggressive of the two. Then we want to listen to a moment of kind of transition that gives us more optimism or energy. And then it will usually come to a halt and it'll stop 
and then we'll get our second theme, often the more intimate, the more lyrical of the two themes. So here's the beginning of Mozart's piano sonata in A minor, and try to listen primarily for those two contrasting characters, and if you also can hear it, this moment of energy gain as we transition from one to the other. Right. So hopefully in there we can hear those two contrasting themes. As I mentioned, we start in kind of the more bombastic, stormy, tumultuous area. And then at a certain point, the music seems to turn. It starts to smile a little bit. There's a little bit of optimism. And then it almost comes to a complete halt. And then we hear this different music. It's in a different register. It's higher. And it's kind of this uh, meaningless noodling around. And it's it's like someone who uh, might be a little bit of an airhead or something, is just waxing poetic about something beautiful. It's just kind of meandering around. Totally different character, as carefree as you can imagine, very different from the seriousness of the opening of this sonata. And so when we listen to classical music, we want to listen to that tension, and we want to be really clear about what the tension is. So in this case, it seems to be a tension between seriousness and carefreeness, if that's even a word, a tension between uh, portention or kind of uh, foreboding and maybe, again, lack of worry. There's there's all these kind of uh, oppositions that are set up through these two themes, and we want to try to identify some of those through listening to the characters. And then as we listen to the piece, we want to hear them play out and see see this kind of agon, this battle between the two of them and how it might actually end up at the end of the piece. Does the carefree music win out? Does the serious music win out? It, it often differs from movement to movement, but this provides this kind of narrative drive to an entire movement of classical music. So this is something to listen for on a larger level, a kind of formal level. We want to listen on the kind of minute-to-minute -minute level of these tensions between two contrasting themes. And so finally, for our fifth tip, and this is not the least important one by any means, it's my personal favorite, but people, the composers who wrote in the classical style were real jokesters, and they put a ton of musical jokes in their music. And I think this is something that we should appreciate. It's, it's like the greatest writers, you think of Shakespeare, opening 
Romeo and Juliet with this ridiculous scene between these two bumbling characters, uh, the most tragic of, of plays opening with this kind of almost farcical scene. And Shakespeare does this all the time. He has potty humor. You think of Chaucer, something in Canterbury Tales. I mean, it's such a hallmark of of great art in a way that you there's also there's humor, there's an ability to laugh, ability to put jokes in the the most odd places. And so Haydn was certainly a master of this. Haydn was considered a jokester his entire life, and he was supposed to be very funny. And he included all of these musical jokes in his music. His surprise symphony is very well known. He started with this dinky little boring melody that was very soft to lull the kind of Viennese aristocratic audience into a sleep. And then he had this enormously loud chord that bursts onto the scene and is meant to wake everyone up and surprise them. And it's supposed to tease all of these people who didn't know what was really going on in his music but would come just for the status of it and they would fall asleep and then boom, I've just woken you up. It's a real classical style move, but I want to hear to a, hear a couple others. Here's one from Mozart, again going back to the magic flute, and I, I love this little moment of inspiration. It turns out that one of the characters, Papageno, he's kind of a, a mischief rouser, and he's kind of some of the comic relief in this in this opera, at least until the second act, when he his character becomes a little more serious at times. But at this point, he's had his mouth padlocked shut for his misbehavior and so Mozart writes this incredible aria for two characters and you know opera is this stuffy place where you have two characters singing an aria a duet this is the most serious business you don't mess with these revered forms and yet Mozart has padlocked one of the characters mouth shut and so the character is trying to sing but can't and so he's just humming instead and I think it's a stroke of genius you have this one character you know, singing this operatic tenor line. He's waxing poetic about something else. And this character of Papageno is trying to mutter through his padlocked mouth. So here's a little bit of that opening aria, which is aptly named, hmm, hmm, hmm. That's, that's actually the heading of the, the aria because the first things that uh, Papageno sings in this aria, which usually gives an aria it's titled, is him trying to speak but not being able to. So here's this this incredible funny aria from the magic flute. <laughs> This is one of my favorite arias by Mozart. Eventually he gets the padlock taken off and then there's this incredibly beautiful moment a little later in the aria where these three boys wake up and it's just, it's a fantastic, fantastic moment in the piece. But here's another one, one more joke just to point it out for us. This one is by Haydn. I chose for this one an actual live performance uh, and I won't even tell you what happens in this, but I'll just let you listen. So here's a live performance. This is the Boston Symphony playing Haydn's 90th symphony and here's right towards the end of the piece and here's what happens.
So this happens to be an actual fake ending that's composed into the score of this 90th symphony by Haydn. He actually wrote the music. He has this triumphant end and everyone thinks it's over. And then he writes in the score these several measures of rest where the the performers are supposed to wait and be silent. And this was specifically because Haydn knew the audience would start applauding and then the performers would still be ready and they're about to play again. And then he comes in with this music in a totally different key, very innocent, and it's completely meant to be a joke to fool the audience. He just wanted to write a fake ending to this symphony. And this stuff crops up all over classical style music in large and small forms. Some some are very overt jokes and some are very small ones just on the margins. But I think it's an actually it's it creates this great humor in the music, but it's actually also kind of profound because it shows this ability to poke fun at oneself, even in the most serious, seemingly serious of art forms, that of classical music. And this is something that Beethoven also was incredible at and and did, for example, in the Ninth Symphony that, you know, considered maybe the greatest musical work of Western civilization in the midst of all of this uh, Schiller poetry about joy and freedom and all of this incredible, uh, you know, romantic allusion to uh, Elysium. It's this high romantic German text. Suddenly out of nowhere in this massive last movement, this ragtag Turkish band marches in and we hear this basically a drinking song with this amateur band that's playing a little bit out of tune. And so the great composers, I think, had this ability to also be jokesters, to be funny, and to incorporate this into even the most serious of their pieces. And this is certainly one last hallmark of the classical style that we encourage you to listen to, that, that just of humor and to catch these little and these small and big jokes that they include in their pieces and to enjoy them, hopefully. So in any case, that's our, those are our tips for listening to classical style music. And as you might be able to tell, hopefully, through my passion for this particular type of music, I think it's some of the best music that was ever composed and often gets a rap that it, it doesn't deserve and, fa- and, frankly, is like not really correct. That it's, it's square, it's affectless, it's just this kind of uh, nicely crafted, pleasant-sounding music. I wholeheartedly disagree. There's not only the full range of character, but there's the full range of character that will happen in the course of of 10 seconds. It's highly operatic music a lot of the time. There's this contrast between two themes which drives so much of the narrative. Um, It's funny. It's metrically irregular. There's so many great things about, about this music. And so I encourage you to go and listen. And one of the great things about classical music, especially from Mozart, Haydn, and early Beethoven, is that so much of it is phenomenal music. I mean, you listen to any piece by Mozart, and I think in a way you can tell it's a work of genius. And so go listen to some classical music, and hopefully these tips will help you apply those techniques of hearing ideas and the mapping technique, because I think those will be especially valuable in listening to some of these elements that we've highlighted of the classical style. So there you have it. Go listen to some Mozart and Beethoven. Again, I'll mention this is not a a, uh, particularly activist podcast, at least in nature, but I would encourage all of our listeners, at least in the U.S., to go vote. If you're not in the U.S., we're we're delighted to have so many international listeners as well, but uh, tell all of your friends in the U.S. to go vote and uh, help us out. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, stay warm, and we will be back soon. Thanks, everybody. 